G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. You only truly know who you are and you only truly know who the people around you are when tension and conflict comes. It is the great revealer. It reveals character, integrity, honesty, courage. You can talk a good game, but you'll only know those exist in a person in the midst of tension. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. In this episode, Pastor Jeff continues his Unpossible series. He's making his way through Judges chapter 7 and the lessons we can learn from the actions of Gideon. Pastor Jeff has identified seven resolutions in these verses that can help guide our lives. He's up to resolution number four about learning to solely depend on God. Let's begin today's message now. Now, here we come to Revelation resolution number four. And resolution number four says this, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna take all these events of our lives and turn them around, the disadvantage, turn it into advantage and use it for the glory of God. If we're gonna take all of those external events and we're not gonna be ruled by them, but instead we're gonna turn all of them into these incredible victories. Res- resolution number four says this, God will usually strip us of everything we depend on other than himself. Now, resolution three was, God will lead us to do that which brings him the most glory. It is closely related to resolution four, but not the same. uh, Resolution four says, God will usually strip us of everything we depend on other than himself. Let's go to the text, Judges 7, 16. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, I'm not certain what the third meeting between God and Gideon looked like. I'd have loved to have been a fly on the wall. We're given information about the first meeting and the second meeting, but what about the third? We're assuming based on the text that God would have said to Gideon as he faces 135,000 well-trained Midianite warriors. Gideon, you know, I told you that 32,000 men is too many. And then I told you 10,000 is too many. And I realize now you only have 300. But I only wanted those men who would, who would trust me and who would take the battle seriously. And let me just pause here. We're gonna do that a few times. You only know, you only truly know who you are And you only truly know who the people around you are when tension and conflict comes. It is the great revealer. It establishes and reveals character. It rather not establishes. It reveals character, integrity, honesty, courage. All of those, you can talk a good game, but you'll only know those exist in a person in the midst of tension. The other thing is coming to the end of yourself 
does not mean taking yourself out of the battle. God wanted those who were serious about the battle. You still got to fight. You got to keep yourself pure. You got to fight for righteousness every single day. You got to resist the temptations to trust in your own wisdom, power, and strength. Make no mistake. God wants to know that you're taking this battle seriously and that you're engaged in the disciplines necessary to win the victory, which means you're meeting regularly with God. You're obeying the hard words. You're doing all the things we've talked about in the preceding weeks. God says, Gideon, I've sifted the men. I know who's serious about the battle. I know who is ultimately trusting me and there's only 300 of them. And with those 300, I'm gonna deliver Midian into your hand. But Gideon, we're not finished. I've sifted the men. Now I need to sift your military arsenal. If I were Gideon, I would be coming to God thinking that God had some kind of secret weapon. Yeah, we only got 300, but we got God. There's gotta be this secret weapon, this technologically advanced spear or sword or bows and arrows and javelins. Maybe we're gonna get something we don't even know exists. Gideon has the meeting with God. He's got 300 men. It's a helpless little bunch against 135,000 Midianite warriors. And God says, Gideon, here's your arsenal. And when he gives Gideon the arsenal, there's nothing about swords and bows and arrows or javelins and spears. Instead, assuming the text, they're given trumpets, trumpets. Now remember, you're 300 men and they're passing out your arsenal, okay? You're getting the goods. You receive a trumpet, a clay jar, a torch to light your way, and your voice, basically, you're told those are gonna be the weapons of the arsenal to go up against these Midianites. <sighs> Listen to me. God will usually strip us of everything we depend upon other than himself. Again, closely related to resolution number three, but not the same, because in resolution three, we're talking about the glory of God. He's jealous for you. He has everything you need for the extraordinary life. He fills every void, meets every need, and grants every victory. He wants you to glory in him, to hold him in the highest regard and come to him for wisdom, power, and strength. That carries into revolution, resolution four. Resolution four asks this simple question. In the heat of battle, what is your go-to? What is the first thing you go to when your life starts to fall apart? When the kids, Delaney and Sion, my kids were little, they'd like to have wrestling matches. And I'd get down on the floor of the carpet and we would wrestle. And Delaney would get down on the floor and he was smart because when I would get him in a bind, he couldn't get out. He wouldn't fight. He'd just say, dad, let me go. But my daughter, I would get her in a bind and I would tie her up and she refused to quit. She would continue to scratch and pill and fight and make a fist and try to hit me in the head or whatever she could find to get loose. And I would have to tell her again and again, relax. If you relax, I'll let you go. I want to tell you something. Our go-to is often demonstrated by my daughter, Sion. When we hit difficult times, we start kicking and screaming. Because, listen, this is so important because most of us want out right now. And we're gonna do whatever it takes to get out right now. In fact, we refuse to stay in the valley long enough for God to complete what he's trying to do in us. I've mentioned numerous times that when I went through my valley of anxiety disorder, after I'd been going through this horrific experience, my, my buddy Dane Johnson came to me and he said, look, I've been through something like this and I wanna tell you something. This will not leave until you go to God and say, God, 
Don't take this away until I have learned what you want me to learn, until you build in me what you're trying to build in me. When Dane said that, I was looking for a loophole. And then he paused and he said, but wait a minute. You can say it, but when you say it and mean it, the trials will be over. He was so right. I said it very often, but it was more of a manipulation and coercion for God to get me out of this and get me out of it now. But when I was serious about it, when I said, God, you must be doing, I've been in this so long, you've got to be doing something extraordinary. So God, keep me in it until I've learned the lessons that you want me to learn. He did, I did, and now I've said to you oftentimes, while it was the worst time of my life, it was also one of the best. Your trials have a designed purpose. The battles that God brings or allows into your life, what's your go-to? You don't know if God caused it or allowed it. You just will never know. But when the trial comes, most of us do not want to wait on God to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. And as a result, we take hold of something that we've given to God. Think about all the things we go to. Here's how the world deals with it. If we have any addiction in our life, that addiction is heightened when the battle comes. We pour ourselves into that, trying to numb the effects and the fear when God's trying to do something amazing. Anything that has taken God's place to bring relief, we go to that thing. We preoccupy ourselves with sport, with some kind of recreation. We enter into an unhealthy relationship of codependency, thinking some person is gonna solve our problems rather than going to God. Sometimes we turn to money. Some people stress shop. Some people stress eat. The point is, we try to engage in something that will help us either numb the effects of what we're going through or get us out of it as soon as possible. I've seen people that I really respect in the midst of trials become Horrific people gossiping and slandering, somehow thinking that they can slander all the enemies that are causing this battle to happen, that their life will be better. But what ends up happening is they themselves end up being destroyed with bitterness. Some people go into pity parties. They just start feeling sorry for themselves and they go from one person to the next person wanting pity and sorrow when that's not going to help them. What is your go-to? What are the weapons of your warfare? God is trying to make sure with Gideon that his go-tos are completely eradicated and he's going to go to God. What on earth are you possibly going to do against 135,000 Midianites with trumpets, clay jars, torches, and your voice? And this is where passages of scripture are spoken out of context. Philippians 4 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I had a big poster when I was in college playing university basketball of Chris Mullen, who played with St. John's. And it was a Fellowship of Christian Athletes poster. And at the bottom of the poster, Chris Johns was in the poster taking a jump shot, one of many, incredible athlete, incredible scorer in the game of basketball. And the caption read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I put that on the back door of my dorm room. And every time I was walking out to go to pregame warm-up or getting ready for a big game, I would touch that poster. And here's what was going on in my mind. I'm going to have a good game tonight. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to shoot lights out. I'm going to be the star. We're going to win. God's going to give me the victory. Do you think that's what that passage is about? What we fail to understand is the context of the verse in verse 13 is verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want.
he's saying that I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can stay in this battle until God achieves what he's trying to achieve in me because of the power of Christ in me. I can do the thing that he can do through Christ who strengthens him is remain with poise and silence in the battle while God completes his work. I went on to read 2 Corinthians 11. There's a pastor, if you're a, if you're a pastor, you're in ministry, I want you to listen to what Paul says. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. I have worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. He's running for his life. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And it's this last line that got me that I see in a whole different way now. He says in verse 28, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Wow. His concern for all the churches would have been enough stress in his life that they weren't being led astray. The gossip and slander among them were not dividing them. He would have lost sleep just over that, the unity of his church or churches, more than one. And yet in all of that, he also has to face being flogged, being chased, being pelted with stones, going without sleep, being hungry, being thirsty. That's why when I complain sometimes, my wife will say to me, I think, Jeff, you need to suck it up. Comparatively, my life is so easy. Even with the struggles that I have, it's nothing like the Apostle Paul. It's nothing like Ajay Law that visited us not too long ago. The point is, Paul is saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying, I can do all things. I can endure. The power of the Spirit gives me the ability to stay in the place that I am while God accomplishes his work and remain faithful to him in the process. The Greek word is eskuo, which means I can do. Or when I reach the limit of my own resources and strength, even to the point of death, I know that I will be infused with the power and the strength of Jesus Christ, that he will give me supernatural inner strength to endure what I never dreamed I could. Now, please stay with me. I know it feels like we're hitting different places, but this is so important for, for us to grapple with, okay? God be, what is God doing in all of this? God began this journey of stripping Gideon of everything he depended on other than himself all the way back in chapter six. Let me read it. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. So God had told Gideon, before I, before I give the Midianites into your hand, you got to tear down those false idols. You got to go and you got to tear down Baal and you got to tear, tear down the Asherah pole. So the people got up and noticed that it happened. And in verse 29, they asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded Joash, bring out your son, he must die. So you can see how committed the Israelites are to God, right? Because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's case? Are you trying to save him? 
Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by the morning. If Bel really is a God, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Bel's altar, they gave him the name Jerubel that day saying, let Bel contend with him. The first thing God tells Gideon to do on this journey of his greatest victory, of one of Israel's greatest victory in their history. You got to go first of all and tear down that altar of Baal and you got to destroy the Astrid pole. Now, let's go back to a series we did early in the year called Under the Influence. Who is Baal and what is the Astrid pole? Baal is a false god that still is in the Western culture to this day. Baal is the king of the gods, the leader of the spirits. He is the God of economic wealth and prosperity. You worship and pray to him when you want your crops to grow. He's called the Lord of rain. He's often portrayed with a lightning bolt in his hand. He's also referred to as the chief God, the Lord, the master of the gods. In short, Baal is the God of prosperity. And the Israelites were praying to him, worshiping him. Ashtoreth, she is referred to as the seductress, the enchantress, Ishtar. And in the Bible, she's called Ashtoreth. In short, she's the goddess of all sexual immorality and fertility. So if you want fertility, you pray to her, you worship her, you engage in sexual immorality as a demonstration of your trust and faith in her. Now, because Israel had not kept their covenant with God and had allowed the gods of the Canaanites to infiltrate, to enter their land, the Hebrews now had blended their religion with the religions of the Canaanites. So their go-to now for prosperity was both Baal and Yahweh to see which one would deliver. Their go-to when they wanted fertility and reproduction was the Ashtoreth and Yahweh. Now stay with me, get a little history lesson, but it'll all come out in the end, we'll put it all in the funnel. Okay. In the Torah, there is something called the principle of Sha'anez, which is, I guess best described as a principle of illicit mixtures. You're taking two things and you blend them together and ultimately it leads to confusion and destruction. So Gideon and the Israelites had mixed the worship of Baal and the worship of Yahweh. And now they're being destroyed. And as a result of being destroyed, they also, because they've confused the gods, they don't know and they can't recognize the voice of God. And worse yet, that kind of uh, a secretism limits one's ability to distinguish between the voice of God and the voice of the evil one because the evil one works through the false gods and can in fact communicate. When you worship the false gods, when you serve them, that God of the demonic world can communicate and speak things into your life. And so you've got him speaking into your life. You've got Yahweh speaking in your life. And if you're not totally committed to one or the other, there's confusion and destruction. Now, let me give you an example uh, of what I believe the Torah is trying to express here. The closer that I draw to my wife, the more I understand her. The farther I go away from my wife toward other things, the less I understand her. The relationship at that point has become confused because I don't know what she's thinking and I don't understand her actions. So there's confusion and disintegration. I also, because I'm not closely related to her or intimate with her, I also start making assumptions about her that are not true, pure conjecture. And the assumptions are based on a lack of relationship and intimacy. So here's, listen, this is important. Here's what the modern church has done. We have attempted to serve all the gods. We want Yahweh, but we want power, money, and sex as well. 
So much so that we think we can use Yahweh to get our false gods and idols. These are the gods of our time. These have become our go-to. Now think about this, our peace, happiness, and significance. When we lose our peace and our happiness and our joy, we think the more money we have in our bank account, the more happy we'll be, but it never works. There's a vast number of young people in our culture today who are being sold a bill of goods that can never deliver. And the bill of goods is this, sex is the ultimate. That's where you get everything, identity, meaning, significance. In fact, a local social commentator says this, sex has become a metric of one's self-exploration or measure of how liberated they are, it, it's become an identity marker. So what we've done is we've combined the gods. The modern church is so weak in its theology that we are confused and as a result are disintegrating. We don't know the Bible and as a result, we don't know God because the purpose of the, the Bible is to reveal the heart and nature and doings and workings of God. So what we've done is we've combined God and secular humanism. And humanism tells us that life is all about us. The Bible tells us life is all about God. So obviously we're confused and we're disintegrating inside the soul every day. We're told by churches even that God is the genie in the bottle. Rub the lamp three times, he'll give you whatever you want. That God is about you. That life is egocentric. That God would never allow, I've heard this, that God would never allow you to suffer or experience any pain that God wants you to be rich and be wealthy and God will help you. His purpose is to help you get the desires of your heart. And we define those desires of our heart as the other gods, wealth, power, sex, whatever it is. Well, false, 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 and false again. Stay with me. There's a lot of debate right now surrounding the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There are many who believe that according to the Bible, the temple will be rebuilt and will stand in its original place, and that'll be a sign that the end is near. The problem is the golden dome of Islam stands there right now. So it would have to be destroyed in order for the temple to be rebuilt. So some suggest that, well, there's gonna be an earthquake, and the earthquake will knock it down, and then we'll be able to rebuild the temple. However, politically, an earthquake that destroyed the dome of the rock would not change anything. The world's demand to keep peace with Islam would always remain. They'd just rebuild the, rebuild the dome. Some other people, theologians, suggest that the Islamic Dome of the Rock has dominated the Temple Mount for well over a thousand years, but it's just a few meters south of where Herod's temple originally resided. So it's feasible that if there's a peace cord signed between the two groups, that the two edifices could exist side by side. But the problem goes back to the Torah, Sha'anetz, the principle of illicit mixtures. What we find in the scripture is the Lord is not willing to share his standing or his land with pagan deities or secular gods. One has to go, one or the other. So in Judges 6, stay with me as we build this. In Judges 6, God speaks to Gideon. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of its height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now, here's what's interesting about this text. The Lord tells Gideon to destroy the false gods. We can't stand by side by side. You got to get rid of them. So that your go-to becomes God, Yahweh, and Yahweh alone. 
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Not only does God want to lead Israel to do everything that brings Him the most glory, He also wants to strip away their go-tos when the odds are stacked against them. Whatever they think will save them, whatever they think will provide safety and security and salvation, whatever they're banking on for the victory, that thing has to be stripped away. So He's going to strip everything away that you go to till the only thing left is Him and He's the only thing you can go to. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.